On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? Tim, I couldn't be better. Today's a great day. How are you? I'm doing well. And today, Lance, on this episode, we have a conversation with uh, a couple of old friends. Private investigator Lou Barry, who we know from the Brianna Maitland case, is on this episode along with Brandon Lawson family advocate Jason Watts. I want to say how cool it is, and I think I even mentioned it to them during the episode, but I think it's really cool that these two worlds that we never thought would come together came together. Uh, we, we know Lou, like you said, from Brianna Maitland. That's Vermont. We know Jason from Brandon Lawson in Texas, and, and they connected. And and now Lou is providing some insight into Brandon's disappearance that, that Jason needs. I think, that's, I think that's incredibly cool. And we also have a friend of the show uh, who chimes in a little bit, uh, Josh Hallmark, who is sitting in as well. Yeah, we have a cameo from Josh Hallmark of True Crime Bullshit. And if you haven't heard that show, check that out. True Crime Bullshit about Israel Keys and other cases, which he is expanding on in a new season. But uh, he happened to be in the Crawl Space Studios, and so he hung out for this interview with us. Yeah, it was very cool to have him in there. And uh, don't ever bring up maple syrup around him because he hates it. Okay, so this is the fourth episode in our series on Brandon Lawson. There are three other ones on these feeds. You can go back and listen to those. This is sort of an update um, on some new information. Uh, there was uh, some some human remains found that we discuss in this episode. And there is also a uh, brand new GoFundMe that you can donate to that, uh, that will really help the family because they are doing a new drone search coming up soon. Right. As you uh, know, if you've been listening to this case and, and even during this interview, they talk about how rough the terrain is and how uh, you can get in there. You can you can paddle down the uh, the Colorado River, uh, but you can't get into the into the terrain. It's overgrown. It has cacti. It has uh, wild boar. So a drone is what this case needs. And that link for the GoFundMe for the drone is GoFundMe.com slash drone search for Brandon Lawson. Or you can just go to GoFundMe and search Brandon Lawson. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to the show, Jason Watts and Lou Barry. How are you fellas today? Everything's uh, pretty good here in North Texas, except for the, uh, the cold, rainy, cloudy day, I guess. Don't complain about the cold. It's 20 degrees here. Fahrenheit. Oh, well, you 
you can keep all that. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys, for taking time out of your day to talk to us about this. It's really interesting uh, connection that was made, right? I mean, we know Lou from the Brianna Maitland case and, right. and Bruce Maitland, and we know Jason Watts from uh, Brandon Lawson's case. And uh, Jason actually took part in a panel with Bruce Maitland at CrimeCon, so a connection was made there. And now you've been working with, with, with Lou on this case. And it's uh, really cool to see how things can come together sometimes. Yeah, it was um, it was actually kind of a coincidence that Brandon uh, contacted me out of the blue. I really wasn't familiar with um, Jason, rather contacted me. I wasn't familiar with Brandon's case, but... Uh, Coincidentally, I think a week or two later, I happened to have a trip planned to Texas to visit uh, my son, and um, Jason was only about an hour and a half or so away, so we made arrangements to get together and have coffee and uh, talk over the case, so it was, it was kind of a coincidence timing-wise. That's very cool. I was just so happy to have you willing to help me out. I knew someone with uh, the experience that you have in law enforcement and investigations was just unparalleled and uh, i knew brandon's case could only benefit from it so i was just so happy to have you on board hard to do too much being uh being as far as away but uh it's it's been a interesting experience and um you know interesting case for sure well awesome before we get too deep into uh the topics of the day just want to let people know that we have a good friend of the show in the crawl space studios uh, the host and creator of True Crime Bullshit. We have Joshua Hallmark. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, anytime. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. yeah I recently moved to the New England area and graciously um, accepted our invitation. And uh, he was deposited safely in the parking lot. Yeah, it was very luxurious. So thank you. And I'm just going to eavesdrop and watch you do your thing. Well, it's really important to have you uh, here during this uh, conversation about Brandon and, and how he's been missing and, and the circumstances and any subsequent investigations, uh, because you got really deep into your cases. You get really deep into them. You got really deep into uh, Israel Keys uh, and focused on the victims, which was something not a lot of people were doing at the time. So I think a lot of your uh, a lot of your thoughts and your contributions to this conversation are going to be very uh, helpful and you know maybe something that the four of us won't be able to see because, um, as they say, you can't see the forest for the trees right. sometimes. So let's um, let's pick it up with um, with any update that uh, you guys have, um, Lou and Jason. And uh, and Jason, I know you were down there recently in uh, the area of where Brandon went missing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, before I get too deep, I just wanted to, to come out and uh, say thank you to a couple of people. Uh, one of them is a is a guy named Dylan that lives down there in San Angelo. He's kind of my official helper uh from that area he's been a was able to do some really cool things for us uh like go to the courthouse get us some records and uh dylan was nice enough to uh get on a kayak and kayak up and down the colorado river a little bit and uh just have a look around see if he could see anything and uh unfortunately at that time the terrain was just uh too overgrown to to see much now what about a drone search do you have a drone too well that's uh, that's something that we have been working on, and uh, that is something that uh, Lou was able to kind of help out with. Uh, Lou, I'll, I'll let you kind of tell them what you were able to communicate with law enforcement, and then uh, I'll kind of follow up with uh, what I was doing down there. 
Okay. Um, well, one of the, one of the things that was obvious, I think, from the beginning was there was some either miscommunication or lack of communication between friends, family, and the different law enforcement agencies involved. So um, it took some phone calling, but basically talking to the Texas Rangers and talking to Sheriff McCutcheon's office and talking to the family and friends, we I think kind of smoothed that all over. Uh, there was the, the, part of the miscommunication was that people were not going to be allowed to search the property, and there was some valid concerns on the part of the landowners. There was a um, a little bit of a catch-22. The landowner said, we need law enforcement's permission, law enforcement saying, well, you need the landowner's permission, and nobody was nobody was willing to abandon. So um, in any event, we t- talked to um, the sheriff in, the, in Texas Rangers and finally got them to agree that if the landowners went along with it, that they would allow another search. So the problem being the terrain is extremely rugged there. It's... it's um, basically dangerous for someone who's not trained in search and everything to, to go out there on foot. Um, so we decided that um, maybe a drone would be a better idea and might be easier to sell to the landowner. So um, we reviewed what has been searched already as far as we can tell. There's been about three searches done between aerial and foot and um, on horseback and kind of eliminating those areas that have been searched fairly thoroughly, we and taking into account um, how far he might have traveled, et cetera. Um, we have some new areas that I don't think, or we don't think, have been searched, at least not very thoroughly. Um, so that kind of got the ball rolling for talking about a drone search. However, um, when we first started talking about in the summertime, the vegetation was so thick that we didn't feel a drone search would be effective at that point in time. So um, that's where Brandon's been keeping in touch with people up there, and he's got up there himself, I think, once or twice. Basically, Brandon, you want to take it over from there? And You mean Jason? <laughs> uh, Jason, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> all good. It's all good. We we tried to get the ball rolling on this like pretty quick, and like uh, Lou said, it was in the summertime when we had – you know, he had talked to law enforcement and stuff like that. And uh, when I, I was down there, uh, August 9th, matter of fact, the six-year anniversary of his disappearance, I went down there to kind of clean up around the cross and put some flowers up and uh, observe the terrain and vegetation to see how bad it was. And it was just horrible. There was no way a drone was going to be able to see through some of that thick brush and grass. So uh, Lou and I decided to, you know, wait and see if the summer heat would kill some of that off. Uh, I sent Dylan, the guy that uh, helps me out down there, back out there in October. And uh, he sent me some pictures and he said, dude, it just, it, there's no improvement. It, it's, it's, it's not good now. And so I said, uh, okay, well, let's wait and let hunting season kind of get finished up. Uh, and let's see if some of the cold weather will kill more of that grass off. And so I went back down there, not this past Saturday, but the one before, to again clean up around the cross and observe the terrain. And the terrain had improved drastically. In the meantime, between summer and now, I had been in contact with uh, a few drone pilots to uh, try to see if they would come out there and, and use their drones. And I made uh, contact with one man by the name of Chris with ATG Cinema there out of Abilene. And uh, I 
told him, you know, hey, this is this is what we're doing. You think you might be able to help us out? And he said, yeah, yeah. And uh, he actually met me down there uh, this past weekend before last. And uh, we did not fly the drone over any personal property. We, since we have not got the uh, response back from the landowners yet, uh, I told him, hey, let's not shoot this thing over any personal property until, you know, we're sure they're okay with it. But can you, can you just kind of send it up and maybe over the river? Cause the river is not private property and see how well the drone can see. And he said, yeah, sure. So we shot it up to about a uh, hundred feet and took a look down at the river and the drone could actually see very well. So Lou and I feel that now's the time to rock and roll. I have a quick question for you. How do you know what is personal or private property uh, when you're when you're standing on the road and you have a drone up there? Is there distinct um, like property markers, maybe stone walls or anything? Well, most of the private properties are fenced off. So as long as you don't cross the fence and you're on the roadside part of it, you're not on anybody's personal property. Okay, gotcha. I was just uh, creating the mental image. For, for myself. Well, it actually took a good bit of research to um, look at the maps and the different different parcels and um, then um, determine the property owners. And from that, I think you had, was it Dylan or someone else, uh, Jason, that actually went to the court's office and got the property owners' addresses um, so that we could get, seek permission from them. But it's been a, been a lengthy process. Yeah, that, that was Dylan that was nice enough to, to go there and do that for us. I was actually going to do it on the 9th when I went down there, the 9th of August, and uh, the courthouse closed at 1 o'clock, and I got there at like 1.05, so I just barely missed it. So I, I called Dylan and said, hey, man, can you can you go check that out for me? And uh, he did. So he this, got those records for us. This, this Dylan guy has come into the picture as being a pretty significant uh, helper for you, uh, canoeing or kayaking on the Colorado River. Uh, reporting back on his findings. Um, when did he come into the picture, and what's his relationship to to you or to Brandon? Uh, he's 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 really just a, a guy that really wants to help out, and he's been awesome, awesome in doing that. Uh, he was actually down there with me when I was down there with the drone pilot. He's he's been valuable. He's just a guy that wanted to help out, and he's really been there. Uh, I think I started talking to him early last year, and uh, yeah, like I said, man, he's he's just been a great help. Oh, shout out Dylan! Yeah, shout out and thank you to yeah. Dylan. And uh, so, any anything like of of great interest that that was found during these uh, these moments during these times? Well, when he put a when he was on the river in the kayak, he. I, at that time, the terrain was still growing up pretty good, and uh, I think he was out there for a few hours, and he texted me, and he said, dude, this grass is so thick that if there was anything in there, I'd never be able to see it. So it's grass, like heavy grass. Around the river, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I know I sent you guys some of the photos. Yeah. yeah. Probably, you can see it, and even if you go to like a Google map street view, you can see how some of that grass is just it's it's almost as tall as I am some in some places. 
Yeah, and from the water, it seems like it's up higher um, than than you're able to see. Like if you if you can stand in a canoe or like stand on a ladder in a canoe, you'd have a much better chance, I think, of seeing into that grass. <laughs> no, and we're which obviously by no means condoning yeah, standing in a ladder. Uh, obviously, in a canoe. isn't realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, he actually took his uh, his paddle and he stuck it down in the water just to see how deep the river was. And he said, man, this thing ain't no deeper than six inches. Yeah. It wow. didn't even cover up the full end of his paddle. And that was over the summer around the same time Brandon went missing. Uh, it was probably around the same level. I know deputy Neil commented, uh, that the deepest point of that river when Brandon went missing was only about knee deep. You know, I, um, while he's on the subject of Dylan, I think it's, um, appropriate to point out that the value of, of, podcasts because they do spread the news on a case and people like Dylan who may never, never otherwise been aware of it, um, get involved. I mean, you know, you think about it, it would be impossible for me on the other side of the country, basically on the East coast to go out there and, and do the things that he's doing. Um, and even for Jason, who's, you know, what three, four hours away from there, it's extremely difficult to be, you know, make a run out there, just check courthouse records. Um, so getting you know people involved that are interested is really a huge assist to um to the families and and friends of of the uh, missing person absolutely absolutely and uh jason while you were down there you you took a little audio kind of under that bridge or right near that uh that bridge actually I i was not near the bridge at all oh okay where were you i was basically standing along the wrong side of the uh, highway right there by where Brandon's uh, truck was found. Okay, so the audio that that you sent was recorded right around the spot where Brandon's car was found. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Okay, and uh, and the experiment that you were going with on that was you you were trying to connect that sound to a sound from the nine one one call. Is that accurate? That's accurate. The sound that everyone thinks is gunshots or maybe. Uh, the sound of a vehicle going over that bridge. You know, I've been under that bridge with an audio recorder. I've been underneath the bridge, beside the bridge, on the north side, on the south side, on the east side, on the west side. I've been all up and down with that bridge with a recorder, and I cannot duplicate that sound. And so basically what I did was say, "Uh, okay, I'm either doing something wrong or this isn't the sound of a vehicle going over the bridge. But, I mean, like I said, I'd like a little bit more time to experiment with it because there may be some conditions that I haven't been able to duplicate. I do know that that sound was generated having something to do with an 18-wheeler, not not a regular vehicle. It, it's an 18-wheeler. I know a lot of people have said that that sound is the sound of a vehicle going over the bridge. Well, yes, but, like, if it's just a car or a pickup truck, that bridge does not make that noise. It is only an 18-wheeler. Okay, so you're talking about the sound that's in the 911 call that people have said sounds like it could be a gunshot or, or gunshots, and the working theory that you're trying to um, work out right now is um, whether it is a car going over the bridge and running over like expansion joints or something on the bridge, and yeah. the reason why you think it would be an 18-wheeler is because a regular car obviously has four tires and an 18-wheeler has 18, so you'd have multiple uh, of the sound and the weight, yeah, probably. So, so That's you need to correct. almost you need to almost wait there until you get an eighteen wheeler to go 
to go over there and you need to be at like the exact position in order to record it the exact way it was recorded during that call. Well, the, the theory that I was working with when I was down there is it, the sound does have something to do with an 18 wheeler, but it may not necessarily be associated with the bridge. Uh, again, I haven't had the chance to work with the audio enough, but, uh, the sound that I sent you yeah. was the sound of me sitting on the side of the road and an 18-wheeler blowing past me at 65, 70 miles an hour. That noise is the rush of air moving past you as he passes by. That's what I recorded. It's like the whoosh, and we'll, we'll play that yeah. sound. We'll play it uh, right now. So here's the 911 call just uh, to use for context. 911 Yes, no, I need the call. Okay. Is anybody hurt? Hello? 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 So you so you heard that whoosh. Yeah, go ahead. We have to keep in mind that the recording that that they have is a recording that was made over over a cell phone. Um, so it wasn't directly it wasn't directly recording the noise. It was recording what the noise sounded like over the cell phone. If that makes any sense. Yes, yes, and that's 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 what I want to do. Is basically when I go back down there the next time to do a little bit more experimenting with this. I want to be on the phone with somebody while I'm standing in that exact same spot, just like I was, and have them record it from their end, and then. I can kind of come back and compare the the sound files and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. Next time you're in that area, let us know. May, you know, call us and we can record the call. Oh, okay. Great. Great. Okay. So, uh, quick question: what What are you uh, intending to prove with this or disprove? I just really wanted to solve the mystery of what that sound was because I know a lot of people have thought that it's gunshot. I have. The last time I was at the gun range. I just sat there and recorded people firing their guns off, different calibers, different types of weapons. And then the sound of a gunshot is its a really high-pitched crack. To me, that's not what's on that call. Okay, do you think that this would lead into something else then? Because if, uh, if you can get that sound and you can match it with uh, a truck, there's a certain proximity to the road you must be at to have it be that, uh, that volume. Is there something that we can uh, gather from that information, like how far Brandon might have been when he made that call? It, and is, is does that make a difference? It, it could possibly answer yeah. another question, yes. If that noise is actually the sound, the, it's just the whoosh feeling, and you're picking up the audio of the air moving past the microphone, it, it could answer the question of, of where Brandon was standing when he made that call. You know, I... I think it's fairly safe to say that he was, when he made that call, he was relatively close. Um, the call came in before his brother arrived, and he saw his brother arrive. So yeah. it's it's doubtful that he 
was further away and then came back again. Um, so, you know, that's another thing I think that leads us to believe that he was he was relatively close to where they were when he made that when he made that nine one one call close to the roadway. Yeah, if if that sound is in fact the sound of just an eighteen wheeler passing by, then you know if he was like way way out in the middle of a field, his phone wouldn't have picked that sound up. Again, this is all just speculation. I want to point that out. It's speculation. Nothing's been proven yet. No, but it's always good to know that you're doing these uh, field researches um, to disprove or to, uh, you know, bring some fact a little bit more into the spotlight. Because you never know. Maybe maybe somebody hears this conversation and, and they remember they might have been on the road that night or something, you know. Just sure. like anything that you can do, whether it's in the field or or, uh, you know, getting uh, getting friends like Dylan to go out there and, and check things out is important. Yeah, and speaking of friends like Dylan, um, Jason, I wanted to ask, was uh, was Ladessa and the family ready to launch a GoFundMe? Uh, I'm going to set up the GoFundMe through me to pay for the drone pilot okay. uh, services. So keep an eye out for that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm trying to get that set up as quick as I can because we, we are going to have to pay our drone pilot for uh for going out there he's going to have to make you know a few trips and that that starts to get a little costly so yes uh i will be setting up a gofundme to pay for the drone pilots services uh look for that to come out pretty soon okay great there'll be a link in the show notes now also there was an article that uh, that you shared with us jason um a while ago about this uh this skull that was found in Texas, in Ector County, Texas. And this was uh, in October of 2019. Yeah, so the skull was uh, located in Gardendale, which is a community on the north side of Odessa. Uh, that's about two and a half hours to the northwest of Bront. I just want to state that uh, there's, because I don't want, I know a lot of Brandon's family listens to these podcast and I don't want them to become upset or panic or, or, or anything like that. But this is a situation that we are keeping an eye on because the medical examiner who took a look at those remains was able to conclude that the remains are from a white male between the age of 25 and 35 and has been deceased anywhere from two to five years, possibly longer. Now, as you guys know, that information does fit a certain number of Brandon's criteria. And I'll, I'll kind of let Lou explain like uh, how he was able to make contact with the medical examiner and, and where the things sit uh, as of right now. Yeah, we, um, we had a bit, of, a bit of difficulty communicating with the sheriff's department out there um, for whatever reason, Hector County, I believe. Um, but eventually he got a hold of the medical examiner's office we confirmed that the uh, what had been found had been sent up to um, for DNA examination, and coincidentally, um, the NamUs and CODIS um, exams are done at North Texas University, which is not that far away. So um, the materials up there could now be analyzed for DNA match. Um, Brandon's DNA is been has been submitted, so we're just you know kind of um, it's a long shot for sure. It's about, uh, I think, 100 and 120 miles maybe away uh, from where Brandon was last seen. But 
um, it's not totally out of the question. If you if you go north uh, into Brunt um, and then um, leave the highway and take, um, I think it's is it 158, Brandon, is that it? Uh, one, yeah, 158 out of Bront, it brings you right over to Midland, Texas. And Gardendale's just uh, a stone's throw from Midland. So, um, you know, there's a possibility that he he was picked up um, by a vehicle, whether it be a tractor trailer or, or a civilian vehicle, and um, got a ride out of the area and uh, wound up getting dropped off either in uh, Gardendale or in that vicinity, and then whatever fate uh, he met after that is, is speculative. But um, you know, it's it's again a long shot, but it's it's not totally um, totally out of the ordinary. And in fact, I think Jason's done a little bit of um, research in, uh, as far as unsolved in that time period. And I think Brand, uh, Brandon was the closest, wasn't he, Jason, geographically? Yeah, I, I basically scoured through NamUs and uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety's website looking for any other uh, missing person cases that fit the age group and uh, time of possible, you know, being there. And there are other cases in Texas where you have a 25 to 35 year old male going missing in that same time range. But yes, Brandon's case is the closest case to that area that I've been able to find. Uh, so obviously this is something that Lou and I want to keep an eye on, you know, just a way of crossing our T's and dotting our I's because as Lou pointed out, even after all this information that has come out from uh, Kyle and Modessa and their interviews, even though all that information has come out, Lou and I still cannot rule out the possibility that maybe he was picked up. Uh, you know, we, they did do these searches. Uh, they, they used cadaver dogs. They went over the area in helicopters. And at that time, uh, that area was very, very dry. And so, you know, you could see certain things from the ground that if you could see those, like uh, the bags of deer corn, that the hunters, you know, where they pour the deer corn into the feeder and set the bag down or whatever, uh, they could see those bags from the helicopter. And law enforcement told us, you know, if you could see those bags, you would see a person. And they just, they, they didn't see anything. And so whenever you have a missing persons case and you're going out there and you're searching and you're not finding the person, that's generally an indication of one of three things. Uh, and Lou, feel free to comment based on your experience as a retired police chief. Those three possibilities are one, you are somehow missing the person, which is, which is possible. We've seen cases where, you know, search teams have gone out and they searched and then they didn't find anything. And then they go and search the area again and they do find something, you know, that happens. Uh, the second possibility is that maybe Brandon wandered out further than they thought he could have. That's possible. We've seen cases like that, but that's pretty the third far. possibility is. They stepped into a car and are no longer in that area. Yeah, I think getting out of the search area from, you know, Brandon having gotten out of the immediate search area is pretty likely. But for him to have gotten all the way to where that um, skull was found, he definitely would have needed a ride. Yeah. But that's, you know, again, it's only when you're looking at it a couple hours. It's, it's not. It's a couple uh, hour drive. It's not out of the ordinary um, that a car getting picked up might take him that far. Oh, sure. Or it might sure. take him up to 
Bronton where he got picked up by somebody else. Um, you know, I don't know if people hitchhike out there still, but uh, you don't see it too much around here. Oh, know. yes. Oh, yes, they do. And when we say that Brandon got into a car, I don't want people to think that he stepped into a car with the purpose of disappearing from his life. I don't believe that at all. It's just, he, you know, he could have said, hey, take me here or hey, take me there. And he would, like Lou said, he was dropped off and may have got another ride or he was dropped off and went missing from where he was dropped off at. I have a couple of questions in regards to this skull that was found. My first question is, was it just the skull? The news report indicated that it was a skull. Um, however, there's some indication that perhaps there was um, additional bones with the skull. And I don't know that that's officially been confirmed, but that's the information we have. Okay, because I was thinking if it was just the skull, maybe uh, a scavenger bird or something like that could have picked up the remains and dropped it, you know, flown a couple of uh, however long, flown two hours and dropped it, uh, or flown a little bit and dropped it, and then another animal picked it up and, and it traveled a little bit further. Uh, so that was just where my head was at with that. My other question is, uh, I'm looking at one of the news articles from uh, News West 9, and it says that it was found near a tank battery by a rancher and his son uh, while they were working with some cattle. I don't know what a tank battery is. What is a tank battery? Come on. <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> I had the same question, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's something that they use in the oil field industry. It's, uh, I think they use it to store liquids or something. Uh, I'm not sure if it's exact contents, but it, it has something to do with storage. But it's used in the oil industry? Yeah, it's used in the, it's used by the oil fields to store liquid. I don't know if they store crude oil in it or if they store caustic chemicals in it that they need for the job. I, I don't know exactly what is put into those tanks, but those tanks are for storage purposes. If you look on Google Earth, um, in that vicinity, there's there's the landscape is littered with these small little I don't know, facilities of some type. Um, that are otherwise out in the middle of nowhere. So, wasn't uh, wasn't Brandon in the oil uh, industry? He was. So, am I am I thinking too too deep into this? Am I looking too deep into this? Uh, no. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't. I mean, he was in the oil industry, right? But there's uh, a lot of I them in Texas. Say that it's too far out of realm for. Like would it, would he know that this existed? Is is he is is this type of thing um, in the oil industry the same as if I worked at like Dunkin' Donuts in New England and it's like right down the street there's hundreds of them or would I know like would I know being in that industry that there's uh, there's a tank battery um, two hours away like would I know where the tank batteries are located? They're all over the place out there. Just according to um, are you ready for this one? According to Petropedia. A tank battery is a device used to store crude oil, which is produced from a well. Uh, tank battery is a number of crude oil storage tank located near a production site. Okay, mm. so a familiar site for someone who probably works in the oil industry. Uh, I'm sure he knew what they were as far as where they were all located. I don't, I don't know. But he, if you walked up to Brandon and asked him what a tank battery is, I'm sure he'd be able to tell you. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. There's just one thing.
thing I, I noticed actually in talking to you, looking at the timeline here, he called that 911 call, I think at 12, 1250. Does that sound right? That's correct. Yeah. And, um, at 12.58, a motorist called and reported, that trucker called and reported his truck in the road. There's an eight-minute time span there, which uh, uh, supposedly or allegedly the truck driver passed the truck and then stopped and brought and called, which would be about eight minutes north, I would think. Um, I'm almost wondering if that vehicle that was heard wasn't the truck that reported his vehicle. Um, being in the roadway, so the timing would be um, would be pretty close. I do know that trucker call does exist. I do know the timestamp of the trucker call. It's twelve fifty six and fifty seven seconds. And this is actually an experiment I looked at too. Lou is one of the people that assist me in working on Brandon's case, Miss Erin Larkin. She was able to interview uh, Deputy Neal, the responding officer. And he did say that the the truck driver did not call 911 when he passed Brandon's truck. He actually finished driving into Bront and stopped at the Stripes gas station to put fuel in the uh, in the truck. And he had actually gone inside and was talking to the store clerk, and it was the store clerk that said, you know, hey, you should probably call the sheriff's department and let them know that truck's out there, you know, so nobody hits it. And that's what he did. And once I learned that, I... Uh, I had to say, okay, well, he called at 12.56. I've got to figure out when he actually passed Brandon's truck. And so this is another experiment I've done, and I've done it about five times, and my time comes out right every time. To get from where Brandon's truck was to that stripes is three minutes, 41 seconds. So you subtract that time off of 12, 56, and 57 seconds. And I think it gives you, what, 12, 53? Something like that. I don't, I don't have a pen and piece of paper in front of me to do all the math. The other variable is how long the truck driver was in stripes before he actually picked up the phone and called 911. So, I don't know. What's the average for going into a gas station, paying for your fuel, and, and yip-yapping for a minute? A couple of minutes? Two minutes? I'd say that's yeah. You know, it's hard to speculate, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it is speculative. It's yeah, pretty close. Um, I, I think the time yeah. is pretty close. Yeah, you you back that couple of minutes off the twelve fifty three, you get twelve fifty one. Well, Brandon called at twelve fifty. Yeah. So it is highly possible that that truck driver was passing Brandon somewhere in the same time he was on the phone with nine one one. Yes, that is that is absolutely possible. Interesting, but he doesn't mention that he saw uh, Brandon or anyone in that 911 call, I take it. He just saw the truck, but he may not have. If Brandon was standing off the road in the brush, he wouldn't have seen him. Right. All right, so let's get into some of these questions that uh, we put out there for the community, and uh, we asked for some emails related to this case for for you two fellows. So uh, here's one from Kay. She says, I was wondering if you could look at what happened to the truck after Brandon disappeared. Did the family or a PI look at getting the car examined or did they get it examined? Did the truck have manual or electric windows? The implication is that if the truck had electric windows, then the deputy should not have been able to put the windows up because he should not have had the keys. That particular model of F-150 that Brandon was driving was an XL. Uh, an XL is basically your basic model line. 
and nothing fancy, not no bells and whistles. Uh, I actually have an XL F-150 for my work truck, and it has manual windows. So it's probably a safe bet that Brandon's truck had manual windows. Okay. And then we have a question from Heidi in California who wants to know uh, why private property owners near where Brandon went missing weren't legally forced to allow search parties to come investigate for evidence or a body. Uh, isn't there a way for them to get a search warrant for those properties? Lou, since you have the law enforcement background, I'll let you answer that one. Okay. Um, first of all, a search warrant would have to be obtained by the um, police department. Private citizens you know, aren't going to get a search warrant. And the police have searched there. And I, and I think they've searched and uh, on more than one occasion, both the Rangers and the Sheriff's Department, and they are apparently satisfied that there's nothing to be found in the location that they have searched. Um, the homeowners don't want, understandably, don't want um, private citizens running all over their property, both for the fact that, you know, they'd be trespassing, and, number, and it's dangerous. They don't want the liability of someone, you know, falling and getting hurt or, or whatever. Um, so it's not so much that the um, homeowners, you know, are refusing the search. They just don't want a search done without law enforcement involved. And the law enforcement has pretty much said, "Well, we're done. We've we've searched, we searched, we searched. We've they, they've had, uh, you know, they've done it by a aircraft. They've done it by um, horseback. Uh, Ranger Hanna has, um, you know, covered the area himself on horseback, and and he, um, you know, they're at the point where they feel firmly that there's nothing to be found. And then I just had a follow up question on that. I know that his phone pinged about three miles away. The final ping was three miles from where." His car was found. Was that area searched? Not well. We we don't believe so. Not not where we want to search, and that's one of the reasons why we focused on that area. The initial searches, if I'm not mistaken, were more southerly, uh, closer to the vehicle, uh, and and went out east and west rather than north. Is that is that right, uh, Jason? They did kind of fan out in all directions a little bit. Uh, east and west, yeah. And they, they did go north and south a little bit. The problem with the cell phone ping, it doesn't give you a accurate geographic position of where Brandon was. Cell phone pings work by multiple towers triangulating the signal. Well, the problem was at the time, Bront only had one tower. So it can't triangulate the signal very well. It has to go off signal strength. Basically, the closest analogy I can give people is you take that area there kind of by the river, throw a dart in the middle of it, and then draw you a big old circle around that dart, Brandon somewhere in that circle when he made that call. And so it, it's, it's hard to get an accurate location of where he was. He, we obviously know by comments that he made to Kyle that he could see him, that he was somewhere in the general vicinity, probably somewhat close because you can see him, but we don't know it exactly where. Okay. And uh, here's here's an email from a John who um, seems to have done a lot of work with uh, with a small group of um, folks in in trying to search for uh, for Brandon. Um, so we should connect with John off air. But the questions that he has are: Have you been able to use drone searches, which we talked about earlier? 
to uh, look for anomalies. Um, and he actually took some some video and looked at some uh, Google Earth 3D views and seems to think he found some um, anomalies in the Google Earth. So I wonder if we can um, connect this information with a drone search when the time comes. Possibly, yeah. Uh, me and Lou can take a look at the anomalies that he's speaking of and see what he's working with, I guess. I looked at a map a little bit of where they were talking about. It's kind of hard to picture because I think he's he's working at it on a different from a different direction than I've been used to looking at the area, so it's going to take a little bit of figuring out. But I, I think I know the area that he, he's talking about. They saw these things. Um, and... Uh, so I guess if you know if, if we could get the landowner's permission again, certainly it'd be worth a check. Cool. In the meantime, I've been uh, Google Earthing where this uh, this uh, tank battery is, and I've learned a lot about tank batteries. And I'm on Google <laughs> Earth right now, and it it seems like it's affiliated with JA Oil Field Manufacturing. Just want to put that out there. Okay, we have another uh, question. Yeah, this is from Catherine, who says approximately five or six years ago she was living in San Angelo. And she had a dating profile on a website called Meet Me. And one day she logged in and was checking on profile views and a profile with Brandon's picture and name was on a list. She sent that link to Ladessa um, and was wondering if that profile was ever investigated. Mm. Well, I'm I, sure I do know was... one thing. There's another Brandon Lawson around the same age that lives in Texas. That is not our Brandon Lawson. Gotcha. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't know anything about the dating link, but it's a possibility that it was him. And it's not really out of the question that people in some perverse um, way uh, do things like that. The same thing happened on Brianna Maitland's case on a Facebook page. Um, someone claiming to be Brianna Maitland with her picture started a Facebook page out of, um, I forget what they wasn't stole, but it was somewhere else in Vermont. Um, the state police actually tracked it down and, t- and interviewed the person, I think, or something. But it was just somebody who's just, you know, for some reason thinks it's funny or, or whatever. Yeah. Now, on on the similar topic, I remember the story about uh, a laptop being found and it had a story on there about Brandon Lawson. Um, and it sort of implied if that the writer of that article had picked up Brandon, this is what the account would have been. Um, now, I know we got some emails about that and some comments about that on YouTube, too. Do you, either of you guys know um, if that was investigated completely, thoroughly? That was investigated. That laptop was turned over to uh, law enforcement. They took a look at it, and uh, I think they told the family it was a dead end. Okay. Uh, speaking of which, I know another question I'm sure you guys have gotten because I've gotten the same question is was the guy that went with Kyle Lawson to look for Brandon that night, talk to Chris. Yes, he was the Texas Ranger did track him down and speak to him. And the neighbor that Ladessa mentioned to you guys in her interview yeah, that Brandon had called that night, the Ranger did track him down and talk to him as well. Uh, nothing came out of those interviews that we're aware of. So I'm sure the Ranger was satisfied with the statements that he got from those two guys. Cool, cool. Thanks for uh, clearing that up. 
I just want to. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm still. Uh, I'm still hung up on this uh, tank battery. Brandon being in the oil industry. Uh, there's there's a body found next to a location that has a lot of people there. A lot like there's this isn't like remote, you know. These people go to these tank batteries and and check them out on, you know, more than more than once or twice a year. I would assume. Anyway, keep in mind you don't know how how close to the tank battery the remains were found. They could have been found several hundred yards away from it, and that's just the closest landmark that they observed when they found the remains. There could be you know a few explanations for that. Uh, one other announcement that I did have, as you guys know, I attended CrimeCon last year, and that was an awesome, awesome event. I met a lot of great people, including the people that help run private investigations for the missing. That is the most wonderful group of people I have ever come across in my life. It was an honor to meet Bruce Maitland, uh, Michelle Kazuba. She is just totally awesome. She has been kind enough to allow me to, you know, write a couple of articles for uh, for their blog. I wanted to give another shout-out to Sarah Turney. I have spoken with Sarah about possibly doing a panel with my uh, Ladessa at this year's CrimeCon. So we're going to talk about that as the event gets closer. Ladessa is attending CrimeCon this year. I will be back as well to assist her. Uh, hopefully Lou makes it because I, I know Ladessa does want to meet with Lou at CrimeCon. And so uh, that's going to be a really, really awesome uh, event in Orlando. I'm so looking forward to that. So if you are planning to attend CrimeCon in Orlando and you would like more information about Brandon's case, uh, we're planning on having a table set up. Please stop by and talk to us. This is Josh. I just had a quick question following up on the skull that was found. Do you know about how far from a road that it was discovered? Uh, I don't know. Do you, Lou? Where exactly where the, which um, tank battery, I mean? Yeah, like, I know it was on private property, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, was it possible for someone to drive this person out there, or are, are they running through a field to get to this place? I, well, I imagine if they store oil, I, w- I would think it must have vehicle access. I mean, they must maintain it somehow, so assumably there must be some type of vehicle uh, access to the locations but i we have i have no idea exactly where it was all i know is it was in gardendale and that's about as accurate a description as we've gotten um until you know unless it turns out to be uh brandon then um we'll probably never know if it does turn out to be brandon then obviously our efforts are going to shift away from brought uh to the gardendale area and that's where we'll probably try and get another um, wide-scale search done, um, you know, looking for the items that we're looking for, cell phones, sneakers, clothing, uh, things like that. And then was this pretty close to a major highway? Well, there's a, yeah, there's a number of roads there. Um, I've never seen them, so I don't know how how major a highway it is, but this uh, Route uh, 20 is, is, you know, maybe five miles away. That's a major highway. Route uh, three, three thirty-eight, I think it is, is up there. Route one fifty-eight goes through there. I, uh, uh, Jason, you know better than I how what kind of highways those are, how bigger roads they are. But um, I would assume there's not a lot of roads, so whatever, whatever it is, the traffic must must travel them. You know? 
Highway 158 out of Bront does lead directly to that area, yes. Okay. Yeah. Right to Gardendale. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing, and the thing, the interesting part, I think, about the oil is that that was um, Brandon's occupation. So in the state that he may have been in, um, he may have a friend that was lives out that way. I mean, working in the oil field, someone he'd met before or something. You know, we don't know that. So that uh, possibility, maybe he decided, well, that's where I'm going to head. I, I don't know. I'm just speculating, obviously. But um, that is an interesting connection, the oil the oil um, angle. I wonder if they can search the tanks. The tank? If they can get in there and search the inside of the tanks. I I don't know. It's uh, a good question. I, from what I can see, what I can tell by the looks of them, they almost look like water tanks. If you yeah. picture what we have out here for a water tank. Yeah, they're kind of like silos, um, like half, like little silos. That's what it, yeah, it seems exactly. like. Yeah, exactly. But and, so and I'm not saying I'm not saying specifically for Brandon. I mean, you found a skull there. I wonder if the next step is to look into the. Would they go into the tanks after finding a skull next to these big tanks? Yeah, no, it's that's interesting. Inter- it is interesting, and and yeah, depending on the state he's in, yeah, he could see something that looks familiar and go towards it. I could see that, but my my, you know, and and that would be great if if uh, you know this case can be closed with with finding Brandon. Obviously, that's the goal. It just seems. Um, it's it's quite a ways. He definitely would have needed to get a ride or or run for hours and hours and hours, and then probably you know get inebriated again on the way or something like that. You know, and then you're talking the next day, daylight at that point. But oh, again, you oh, know, least, yeah. yeah, who you know, who knows? A lot of possibilities. It it certainly is startling that the the specs sound like it could be him with the age range and um, with a, it being a white male. Well, I mean, the possibility is there, uh, but I mean, you know, there are plenty of other oil field workers in that area that are that age range. Uh, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's one of those things you just keep an eye on to cross your T's and dot your eyes. I don't think Brandon would have been able to walk that far, especially not in that heat. He would have had to have gotten a ride, but I mean, I mean, clearly these, these remains do belong to somebody. So uh, you definitely want to get the answer on who it is because somewhere out there there's a family just like the Lawsons that need an answer. Yeah, exactly. Right. And didn't he – he just got a new job, right? Refresh my memory. He just got a new job. Um, and and where – do you do you know the name of the company that he just uh, worked previously? And what was the new company, if you happen to know? Uh, the name of the company he was working for was Renegade oil well services and i can't remember the name of the new company is supposed to start i want to say it was superior well services but i can't swear to it i was just curious cool um is there anything else you guys want to hit no let's keep our fingers crossed both in the drone search and in the um couple results from the lab coming back in a timely manner uh, i don't know how long it, it will take i don't know how big a priority a case like this is probably not not as big a priority as you know as, as an active um Active case that they might have, but uh, let's keep our fingers crossed anyways. I'm going to end on this. Look, I know after this amount of time passed, has passed since Brendan went missing uh, that a lot of people think that after everything that's happened and all the new information that's come out, that uh, I just want to say I firmly still believe 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that Brandon will be found. Uh, I don't know when, but the day is going to come, hopefully sooner 
rather than later, especially with these drones getting up in the air. Well, uh, maybe we can find some evidence. But I'm going to continue to stand behind the Lawsons and help them push for answers until the day it's over. And uh, one day, I'm going to get to drive out to that cross and tip my hat to it and tell Brandon thank you for the respect that he showed me. And uh, I'm going to stand behind the Lawsons while they take that little plaque that says missing off that cross because he won't be missing anymore. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.